One of the ways Satan captures and enslaves people is through guilt and shame. Today, we'll continue to learn how we can move from a mindset of guilt to a life of grace. This message is the 13th in the series, Remind. The message is entitled, From Guilt to Grace, Part 2. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Grab your Bibles, if you will, your teaching sheets, as we turn our attention to the final message in this series we've been involved in for a number of weeks now called Remind. This is lesson number 13, an entire semester together studying God's Word about how we get our minds where they need to be. I have thoroughly enjoyed this series, and I have a little bit of grief. I have to be honest with you, a little bit of grief as we come to an end here uh, because it's been a lot of fun to talk about how God changes us by changing the way we think. How many of you can say that at some point along the journey of these last 12 weeks, today being the 13th, that you can say that God has spoken something into your life that's making a difference about how you think. That's fantastic. A large number of you indicating that God's been working in your life that way. I want to wrap up this weekend by talking about what we started talking about last weekend. I want to talk to us about moving from guilt to grace in our thinking. How do we move from guilt to grace in our thinking? Now, the Bible, again, is very clear about the fact that our minds, the way we think, very important to God. One of our key verses, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which you join together reading with it with me again from the New Century Version, again, both in Frederick and Gaithersburg together. Here we go. Be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. That is, pay close attention. In fact, that one translation says, keep your heart with all diligence. Be very careful what you think because your thoughts are running your life. They are the software, the operating system of what happens in your life. Paul talks to us about the importance of our thinking in terms of how it brings about change in our spiritual journey in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Listen as I read this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you. That is, change you. The actual Greek word there is metamorphosize you. It's like going from a moth to a butterfly, and a butterfly just to be able to have that freedom and that experience, that metamorphosis. But let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. You will never become new in your actions without being new in your thinking. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We can't even really discover the fullness of God's will until our minds begin to become more holy and healthy. Would you say those two words with me? Holy and healthy. Holy means more like God, thinking the way He thinks. Healthy means fulfilling the health, the wholeness that He created us to be as human beings. And so we need to have holy, healthy thinking. Now, as, as I did last week, I'm going to do it again this week as well. I'm going to uh, embarrass myself by drawing a picture, okay? Now, you guys were very gracious with me last week, and you didn't laugh at this too much. So I'm going to start by drawing my rendition of a brain again, okay? So here we go. I know it's pitiful, but there you go. That's the brain. If you've ever seen pictures of the brain or images of the brain, you realize that in the brain they're all kind of uh, little bitty crevices and wrinkles and so forth and your gray and white matter there in your brain and what's going on in your brain all the time is this sort of an electronic system in there and it's firing off neurons and uh, different thought patterns and chemicals are being released as you think certain things. That's why we often talk about people having uh, have, their, have a chemistry of their brain needing to be adjusted because thoughts produce chemistry and electrical firings that occur inside, actually physiologically inside of you. And what you think about determines what you feel. It determines how you act. 
And what we must realize is that thoughts that are repeated over a period of time become thought patterns. And thought patterns are ways that you think without thinking about it. You think without thinking. It's just as a pattern that flows in your life. We do it all the time. I've talked about how you wake up in the morning and there's certain things you do without thinking about it. How you get in your car, you drive, you don't really think about what you're doing. You may ride a bicycle. You've learned it when you were a kid. You can still do it now. Why? Because there are thought patterns that have been established in your brain. And it's wonderful when these thought patterns, these thoughts and thought patterns are holy and healthy, but when they're unholy or unhealthy, it leads us into trouble. And Satan, who, by the way, is a very real foe, there is a real enemy called Satan. He exists. And there are demonic entities in the unseen world around us. It's called the spiritual realm of darkness. And just like we as Christians want to live in the light, there's also the kingdom of darkness. It wants to influence our lives. There are demonic entities and demonic spirits that exist in the evil world that would like to find ways into your thinking. Because if, that, if you can begin to think unhealthy thoughts or unholy thoughts and get into a thought pattern that is unhealthy and unholy, what happens is there, 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 there's little blockages that occur, if you will, in your thinking processes. And you come to sort of these places that you can't really think differently and you're, you're locked up in a, in a thought and a way of thinking. And it actually can, can ruin your life. There are a lot of people whose lives are being ruined or certainly diminished in, great, in a great degree because they've got something in their head that's just not true. They've got something in their head that's just not right, something in their head that's unholy or unhealthy for them, and it's actually draining real life from them. They can't be everything God wants them to be because they're not thinking the way God wants them to think. In addition to these things that get built into us, and this is another lesson for another time, but these are referred to in the Bible as spiritual strongholds that need to be broken, there are also uh, fiery darts of the enemy, Satan. The Bible speaks in Ephesians chapter 6 of Satan being one that shoots fiery darts against believers, and he tries to, again, lodge things in your mind, just thoughts that come at you from all kind of places. You don't even realize where they're coming, but they're trying to work their way in. Now, again, it's okay if these thoughts are healthy and holy. Really trouble if you have a problem, if you have not developed healthy, holy thinking. One of the areas where we get stuck many times is in the areas of guilt and shame. We talked about that quite a bit last week. And how many of us get stuck in guilt and shame, and because of that, Satan has a grip on us in certain ways, and we can't live the free life that Jesus wants us to live. So I want to continue to talk this weekend about how do you overcome, how do you break the strongholds, the patterns of guilt and shame that eat away at your life and rob you from confidence and rob you from being everything that God wants you to be. And there are two things I want to talk about this weekend that will help us to, again, continue to address this particular area in our minds. The first thing is this. We must understand that God has given to each one of us a way to get rid of guilt. God has given us a way to get rid of guilt. I need to explain something about guilt for you this morning. Guilt, as we talked about last week, can be real and it can be false. Real guilt is when you've actually violated something that is contrary. You've done something contrary to God's Word or God's will. If God's Word says this is right and this is wrong and you do the wrong thing instead of the right thing, you're going to feel guilty. And that's what guilt is designed to do, to draw your attention back to a relationship with God. So that's a good thing. Uh, there can be false guilt. We talked a bit about that last week. It's not my purpose to talk about that today. But what we must understand, especially, let's just stay in the realm of real guilt for a moment. 
When you and I have sinned against God and we've done something that is wrong or we're living in a lifestyle that is wrong and we, we recognize that by the sting of guilt inside of us, we must understand that guilt can't just be pushed away. You can't wish guilt away. You can't just sort of hope that it goes away. You can't sort of try to shut guilt out of your mind because guilt can't be shut down. You can't wish guilt away. Guilt has to be washed away. I want to say it again. You can't wish guilt away. Guilt has to be washed away. Maybe you've had a, a, maybe a new shirt sometime or a new blouse. And it's the first time you've worn it. And you're excited about it because, boy, you love this new shirt, this new blouse. And you get in the car, you got a cup of coffee, and wham, spills right on it. First time you wore it. And you look at that, that shirt and you say, wow, I just, I've ruined it. I've blemished it. What can I do? And then you remember something. You remember something called the Tide Stick. Anybody? You found the Tide Stick? Okay. A miracle worker. And you grab the Tide Stick and you apply it there and that stain that was there is washed away and it's returned back again to its wholeness, to its newness, to its pristine condition. Why? Because not that you wished the stain away, but the stain was washed away. And what I want you to realize today is that there is there's a God in heaven who loves you enough not just to allow you to experience guilt when you get off the course and that's an important thing. Again, it's the warning light on the dashboard of your car. But to also give you the way to get rid of guilt, to wash it from your life. And the way to get rid of guilt is not by doing things. It's by having a relationship with the person. Okay? There's, there's the way to experience the washing of our guilt is by a relationship with a person, not by doing things. See, a lot of people try to get rid of their guilt by doing things. If I can just work better, be better, do better, then I'll get rid of my guilt, and they try to work their guilt away. No, the only way you can get rid of your guilt is to have a relationship with the only one who can wash guilt away, and we all know his name. What's his name? His name is Jesus. Let me take you to a very familiar story in John chapter 8. I love this story, and I think most of you perhaps have heard it before, read it before, studied it before. Let's take a look at it just for a moment. John chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So let's get the setting here that's going on. Jesus had been at the temple uh, teaching and sharing and doing all kinds of things. Then the night came. He went to the Mount of Olives where he spent some time in prayer. And then the next morning, he comes back to the temple. The Bible says he went to the temple area, and he sat down, and he began to teach. And the Bible says that all the people, what does it say they did? They gathered where? around him. So we would have to imagine that there's a large group of people around Jesus while he's teaching them in that setting. Wouldn't that have been great to have been there to hear what Jesus had to say? So he's sitting there, he's teaching, he's sharing his heart with them. Now let's take a look at what happens in the setting. You got the setting everybody? Okay. Verse number three, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. Can you imagine what's going on here? Here's Jesus teaching. There's a whole bunch of folks around listening to him and right in the midst of his sermon, right in the middle of his, his homily, in the middle of his, his exhortations, here are these religious folks that drag in a lady and bring her right into the middle of the group. How humiliating. Can you imagine for that dear woman what kind, of, what kind of horrible moment that must have been for her? Although she had done something wrong, she's been being humiliated. 
not only before the Savior, but before all of that group of people, her peers and people that would have known her. And Jesus, and he, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Bible says that she was brought being taken right out of the very act of adultery, which means this, the Pharisees much, must have been watching. Tells you what kind of guys they were. Right? You getting the story here? In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, now what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And so here's what happened. They throw the woman into the presence of Jesus. And they say, we brought her in from the very act of adultery, Jesus. And the law says that you need to stone a woman like this. Stone her. And that's not the recreational kind. Some of you will get that when you get home this afternoon, okay? <laughs> Stone this lady. Put her to death. The law says that you've got to do this. And Jesus, what are you going to do? And the Bible says that Jesus got up from where he was seated. That is, he moved to begin to deal with the situation. But what you must understand is there is a dilemma now. At least they perceive they put Jesus in a dilemma. The dilemma is this. The law says, kill her. Jesus, you've been teaching all this love and grace stuff. And so are you going to kill her or are you going to let her go free? Jesus, how are you going to handle this? We've got you now. We have trapped you. There is a no-win situation for you, Jesus. If you go this way, you're going to deny the quality of your nature that you proclaim. If you go this way, you're going to deny the law. Jesus, we've got you. We've trapped you. But dear ones, understand something. You can never trap. Jesus. He comes out a winner all the time. You can't trap him because he is the God of wisdom. He knows what to do in every situation. He knows how to handle the set of circumstances. And so what happens here, the Bible says that he doesn't say anything initially. He simply kneels down and begins to write in the dust. What does Jesus write in the dust? The Bible does not tell us, but this is the only time in the New Testament that we're told of Jesus writing anything. There's never another time recorded of Jesus writing anything, but he's writing in the dust. That finger of God writing in the dust is reminiscent of the finger of God writing the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. It is reminiscent of that finger of God writing to Daniel, the writing on the wall that happened. There's a finger of God that is stepping into the situation to impart wisdom, to give understanding to what's about to occur. So the finger of God is there now. What did he write? We don't know. I'm going to give you some speculation here in just a moment. Let's go back to the story. He's writing, not saying anything. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, read with me. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If any of you are without sin, anybody here, Jesus said, among you religious folks that you've never done anything wrong. Is anybody here that you've never failed in any way? You, you be the first one to cast the stone. You have the innocence, if you will, to condemn her because of your perfection. Of course, Jesus realized there was no one among them who had the right to do this because all of them were guilty. 
And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard, who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, that's significant, uh, until Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Let's stop there for a moment and let me see if I can speculate what I believe likely happened. I can't prove this to you. This is only speculation. Turn to somebody and say, it's the pastor's imagination. Go and tell them, it's the pastor's imagination, okay? I cannot prove this to you, but I think it's a good imagination. He stoops down the second time, and he begins to write. What does he write? I believe he starts writing the names of all those Pharisees. And he begins to list the sins that they have committed. That's why I think it's significant when the Bible says they all begin to lead the older ones first. Why? Because their list was getting out of hand. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, you've been around for a while. You've got a lot of stuff on your list. Amen? And they all left. They all departed. And now you must see the picture. There's still a crowd around. The crowd hasn't left, but the religious folks have. And now it's primarily the spotlight of the story centers down right on Jesus and this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. Now we're going to see how does Jesus handle someone who is caught up in sin? How does Jesus deal with someone who is guilty? How does he handle someone who has this kind of problem in her life? Take a look at what happens next. The Bible says in verse number 10, Jesus straightened up. So he rises from having written on the ground. He straightens up and asks her, woman, where? Where are they or where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Read the rest with me. Go now and leave your life of sin. You must understand all of this story. Don't just take the part that you like. See, we like to take the parts of stories that we like and we like to exit from the parts and leave on the buffet table the part that we don't want. But there's a two-part aspect of the story that you must get to understand how to get free of guilt and shame. You can't take one or the other. You have to have both because Jesus came as the one full of grace and full of truth. You can't just have the grace without the truth, and you can't have the truth without the grace. You have to have grace and truth. And here is Jesus embodying, handling with the greatest of wisdom, the wisdom of God, the full connection of something called grace and truth, neither being in contrary contradiction to one another, but in union with each other. See, grace isn't opposed to truth, and truth isn't opposed to grace. They work together. And Jesus said, woman, where are your, your accusers? Where are the people that have condemned you? She said, they're, they're gone now. Jesus, you took care of that. And Jesus said, neither do I, what word did he use? Condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. In that moment, there was the gift to this lady of something she desperately needed and wanted. It was the gift of forgiveness. It was the, guilt, it was the gift of her guilt being washed from her. Can you imagine when she heard those words from Jesus Christ? Neither do I condemn you. How precious those words of forgiveness must have been to her in that moment when her guilt was washed away. And then Jesus said something else. He said, 
neither do I condemn you. Now, I want you to go your way and keep doing what you've been doing because it's all okay. Is that what, she, is that what he said? No. He said, go your way and sin no more. See, grace brings forgiveness, but it also brings transformation of your life. See, grace is not just about God stamping his stamp of approval on anything you want to do, okay? That's not grace. Because some things, anybody have kids here? Okay. Any, your kids ever want to do things that they really want to do and they think is fun, but it's not good for them? Raise your hand, okay? And you know it's not good for them. And so grace is, I, I, I'm going to forgive you for doing that, but don't do that again. Because that's going to get you in trouble. That's going to lead to problems in your life. And so Jesus weds these two things and sends her on her way, having been forgiven, but also giving, given a new approach to living. Living in a way that now is a life of holiness and health that she's been called to because grace has touched her in an amazing way. Let's take a look at the grace of Jesus again. Because I want you to know something. If you're a sinner, Jesus is your best friend. He's your best friend because he washes guilt away, but he also gives you new life. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. You must understand from this story who Matthew was. He becomes one of the disciples. In fact, the first gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're reading about a guy who is changed by Jesus, but when he first meets Jesus, he is a mess. The Bible just wraps it up with that one little phrase, he was a tax collector. It doesn't mean that he just collected taxes. What it means is this. See, back in those days, to be a Jewish tax collector meant that you were in a contract with Rome. Because Rome oversaw all of the area where the Jews lived in Israel and Palestine. And so here is this man, this Jewish man, who is contracted with Rome for a certain amount of money every year. So he's got to pay them a certain amount. His contract requires a certain amount to be given to Rome. And what he does is he goes to his fellow Jews and he can charge whatever he wants to charge, whenever he wants to charge it, and he can actually, in many ways, create all kind of issues and problems for his fellow citizens to, to get them out of sorts with Rome because he is in charge of whatever tax he wants to extract from them. And so he's, he's a liar, he's a cheater, he's a stealer. You might recall another tax collector named Zacchaeus. You remember him? He'd stolen from people big time. So the Bible, that little phrase says of Matthew, he was a tax collector, but Jesus comes by to a man that was caught up in corruption. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. Let's pick up the story here, what happens after Matthew meets Jesus, because, again, it was not a condoning of Matthew's lifestyle. It was a forgiving of Matthew's lifestyle and a change of life. And we see this change in verse number 10 later. We don't know how much longer, but sometime later, later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors. So now he's reaching out to fellow sinners, people who have been just like him before he met Christ, along with many tax collectors and other, I love this phrase, disreputable sinners. I like that. Can you imagine the dinner guest list? Some pretty bad dudes would have shown up at Matthew's house that night. 
And Jesus comes along. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, read with me, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus said, let me tell you why I came. I came for people who are full of guilt and shame. People who've messed up. People who are notorious sinners. People who are scum, if you will, people who have just feel like they're okay, but they don't realize the sin that's in their life, and they don't understand the depths in which they've walked away from God, Jesus says, I have come to help them to get rid of guilt by applying something called grace. And this is a key word for us this weekend, the word grace, because God wants to help us to understand how to live in grace. What does it mean to live in grace? How do you and I experience grace? We can't live in grace if we don't understand what it is. So I'm going to give you very quick, I'm going to give you sort of a nickel definition of grace because I can't, grace is such an incredible topic. There's no way that I could cover it today, but I'm going to help you to understand grace. You can't understand grace without understanding another word, mercy. Say mercy and grace. Say it with me. Mercy and grace. You can't understand. Both of these go together. Mercy and grace. Mercy is this. Mercy is not experiencing or receiving the penalty or the judgment or the sentence for something wrong that you've done. You go to a judge, you're guilty of a crime, and you go before the judge and you plead mercy. Judge, please have mercy. Don't give me the punishment that I deserve, okay? So that's mercy. It's when, the, when there's an authority that removes from you the sentence that you rightly deserve, okay? Here's grace. Grace is different. Grace is similar to mercy. It includes mercy, but it's more than that. Grace is not only removing from you the penalty that you deserve, but it's also giving you blessing you don't deserve. It's adding something on top of it. Let's go to an example that many of you can understand. Let's talk about your kids for a moment again. If you have children, you understand, again, they do wrong at times, and they plead for mercy, don't they? Oh, Mom, please don't make me sit in the corner. Please don't, whatever the, the punishment might be, they plead for mercy. And here's how mercy works. Mercy says, okay, I'm not going to make you do, I'm not going to give that punishment to you. But here's grace. Grace says, in addition, not only am I not going to give punishment to you, but let's go get ice cream. Let's go do something you don't even deserve. You've been bad. You've done something wrong. I'm going to withhold from you the punishment that you deserve, but I'm going to add to it a blessing that you can't even imagine. I'm going to show you how good of a parent I really am. And when you and I come to God as sinners, we come to Him realizing that we need a lot more than, what we can, that we, than anything that we deserve. We need His forgiveness, yes. We need His grace. And we plead for mercy and we receive His grace and it changes our lives. And how does all this happen? Let me give you some steps here that are vital to this process. In fact, let me just give them to you very, very quickly. I think you'll understand them. I've already covered a lot of them as we've gone through this together. Number one, remember that God is loving and merciful. That's how you enter into grace. Number two, admit that you're a sinner. You're never going to seek a Savior if you don't realize you're a sinner. And all of us need to realize all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Number three, personally accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the, at the atonement for your sinfulness and for your sins. Understand that Jesus Christ came as the atonement. I'm going to talk about that word atonement on Good Friday this year, and so I hope you'll be here for our Good Friday service. Very important word. But you have to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. It has to be something you do for yourself. 
No one can do it for you. You reach out and say, Jesus, I want you to save me because I am a sinner. I can't get it because my daddy had it or my mama had it or my grandma or granddaddy had it. I've got to receive it myself. I need you in my own life. Number four, learn God's word and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to know how to get guilt out of your life and receive grace unless you really know when you've messed up. And part of what will help you to know what you, when you've messed up is God's word and God's spirit will help you to realize when you've been guilty and where you need grace. Number five, quickly and regularly confess your sins honestly and specifically that when you know that you've messed up, and you have guilt and shame in your life very quickly as soon as you realize it confess it to God knowing that he is there to forgive then ask God to forgive you God I'm asking you to forgive me for this sin for where I'm guilty where I have shame in my life I ask you to forgive me and then you accept God's grace Lord thank you for the gift that you have given to me and then read verse read, read number the last one there number eight read it with me live in a way that shows your appreciation for God's grace once you've received God's grace the Bible says that we're not to take the grace of God in vain, okay? That means we're to live out a life that shows we're in a, we, we appreciate it. John 8, 11 again says this, No one serves, you said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So God gives us a way out of guilt, and that way out is one way. His name is Jesus. All right, let me cover the next point for us in the next few moments here very quickly. Grace is a gift of God to you and should become a gift of God through you to others. It's very sad when someone receives grace, but they don't want to give it away. They get it for themselves, but they don't give it. And God says it can't work that way. If I'm going to give you grace, then I expect you to do what with it? Give it away to others. Here's the interesting thing about us as human beings. We want grace for ourselves and judgment for everybody else, don't we? Amazing, sing with me, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I wrote a second verse. You want to hear it? <laughs> but you have made me very mad. You've hurt my feelings too. I will make you pay the price your entire life through. See? We like the grace that comes to us, but when somebody does something to us, what do we want to give back? Judgment. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace to me. Would you please kill him? Okay. It sounds foolish, doesn't it? But that's how we live. Let me take you to an amazing story in the Bible, an incredible story in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read this very quickly, but you need to hear it today. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was really being gracious there. 
Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. The actual meaning of this means continual forgiveness. Therefore, now Jesus says, let me give you a teaching here, Peter, and all you disciples, listen. I'm going to teach you a parable that will help you understand this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, by the way, if you calculate out a talent and multiply it, what, the, what that would be in modern-day currency and equivalency, uh, and multiply that by 10,000, it's literally somewhere in the multiple millions approaching a billion dollars today, okay? It's a bunch of money, okay? So here's a guy that owed a king millions, let's just use it conservatively, literally millions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. And so the king says, you can't pay me. I'm just going to have to sell, sell your family, put you into slavery to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I, I will pay you back everything, pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Stop there for a moment. What I want you to see about this moment is that this is what I would call genuinely a hallelujah moment. Would you agree with that? Okay. If you owed someone millions of dollars and you couldn't pay it back and they canceled the debt, let me just ask you, what would you say? You'd say hallelujah. You'd get closer to Jesus than you've ever been, okay? Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you go home this afternoon and MasterCard calls you and Visa calls you and say, you know, we've just been thinking about you. You've been on our heart. We just want to forgive all your debt, okay? <laughs> oh, you have a mortgage, we'll pay that to you. Any car debts, we'll pay for that also. Hey, education loans, no problem. Got it covered, okay? I would hear you all the way from wherever you live to hear it. It'd be a great hallelujah moment, wouldn't it, okay? You'd be on not cloud nine. You'd be on cloud... You'd be in heaven, Okay? The rapture would have happened for you, okay? Well, let's see what happens to this guy who's had a hallelujah, hallelujah moment for himself. But when that servant went out, so he leaves the presence of his hallelujah moment, okay? But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. So now he's received from the king forgiveness, right? Right? Now he goes out and finds a fellow servant, a brother, Okay, sister, who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, you must understand there's a massive difference between a denarii and a talent. A denarii was about one day's wages, so a hundred denarii is about a hundred days' wages, so somewhere around maybe fifteen to $20,000 would have been about what that would have been the equivalence of compared to millions of dollars. And so he's got somebody that owes him, let's say, $15,000 compared to millions of dollars. So he finds this guy who owed him a hundred denarii, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Can you believe this? 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were, they were uh, greatly distressed and went and told their master, this is the king, everything that had happened. Then the master, the king, called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have taken the grace that I gave you? Shouldn't you have taken that same grace that I showed you and done what with it? Given it away? Treated other people the same way that I treated you? And then he says there, in his anger, the Bible says, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Now read verse 35 with me all together. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Here Jesus said, this is what's going to happen if you don't learn how to live a life of grace. If you don't let your mind become filled up with this thing called grace. You want to receive it, but if you don't want to give it, it doesn't work that way. How it works is I'm going to give it to you. You've got to give it to other people. I'm going to forgive you, but you have to learn to forgive others. So let's wrap up here by talking about the characteristics of a gracious-minded person. How do you make sure you're thinking in a mindset of grace? A grace-minded person, a graceful thinker, gracious thinker will give hope and life. What did Jesus give to the woman caught in adultery? Hope and life. A gracious-minded person will show humility instead of pride. They will show favor even when favor is not deserved. They'll give room for growth. You ever needed some room for growth in your life? You just weren't quite where you needed to be? And Well, gracious people give other people room for growth. Gracious people are, read with me, they are generous, merciful, forgiving, patient, and forbearing. I like number six here. Gracious people stay tender when dealing with hard situations. You know, life can be hard, can't it? People can be hard. But the beautiful thing about grace, it'll keep you tender even when life is hard and people are hard. Gracious people check themselves before others. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, don't, don't try to take the, the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. He said, get, get the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Let me tell you why that's important. He doesn't say that you can't help your brother get the speck out, but if you are dealing with someone else in a judgmental, pharisaical spirit, what happens is you're not going to be any help to them at all. But when you begin to deal with the stuff in you, you realize how much mercy and grace you need for yourself, and you look at your own log, and you realize how gently you want someone to help you get a log out of your eye, then when you go to help someone else, you will have learned the ministry of gentleness toward them. You'll learn how to gently help them find help for their lives. And so what happens is this. Gracious people don't point the finger at others first. They look at themselves first. What's going on with me? I like to remember this. I've told you this before, but it's a great, great principle for your life. Please remember this. That every time you're pointing the finger at somebody and just, can, just railing on them and angry at them, Remember this, you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. It's always a good reminder. Every time I'm pointing my finger at somebody in, in agitation and anger and frustration, then I must take a moment and step back and say, what, what, what's the log in my eye? The next one, number eight, they enjoy life and relationships. Can I just propose something for you today as we're wrapping up? If you're not enjoying life very much, 
and you're not enjoying your relationships very much, you need to check your grace because grace will help you to enjoy life. Because when you learn to live in grace, there's a lot of stuff that just goes away. There's a lot of irritations that go away, a lot of things that are just removed from your life when you learn to have a grace mindset and it brings strength to the relationships of your life. In just a moment, we're going to come to this table right here. Oh, you'll receive the elements. We're going to have communion together. You'll have them passed to you. But what I want you to know is that this is a table of grace. That's what this table is all about. You know whose table this is? The Bible calls it the Lord's table. It's not our table. We celebrate it as a church, and we do it in our unique way here as a church family. But it's not, it's not our church table. It's not, certainly not my table. It's not even your table. It's the Lord's table. And when you have a table, you get to choose who you invite to it, don't you? If you're, bu- if you're buying the food, you get, to, you get to create the guest list, don't you? And what I want you to see is that Jesus bought the food for us. He bought it on the cross. He gave his life. And that piece of bread you're going to hold in a few moments represents the fact that Jesus loved you so much and loved me so much. And he wanted you to experience change in your life and grace in your life so much that he literally gave his body on the cross of Calvary. And that's another whole lesson in and of itself of the fact that Jesus took our sins upon himself so that we could go free. That's what that bread is all about. And then you'll take the cup. The Bible calls it the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. And when you drink of this cup, what you're reminded of is that it's through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Just like lambs were slain back in the old days of the temple, the tabernacle, lambs were slain so that atonement could be made for the sins of the people. Jesus said, I'm going to shed my blood so that you can be forgiven. So when you drink of this cup in a few moments, what you're doing is you're drinking of a cup of grace, a cup of forgiveness. And Jesus invites you to this table to receive grace. Grace not to condone your life. Grace not to condemn your life, but grace to change your life. Amen? To wash you and free you and allow you to live and be everything God created you to be. Would you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for your word this morning. I ask you would help us to learn more of your grace. Thank you for the grace you give to us and help us to Learn to extend it in all of our relationships. Help us to not be like the man in the story. But help us to be, Lord, the kind of people that you've called us to be. People of grace and truth. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's Word that will make a difference in your life now and forever. Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that 
that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me, and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life, and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ. And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. And we'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with the pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org newbeginnings. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.